You're listening to the Redeeming Grace Church podcast. For more information about our church, go to rgcrc.org. Oh God, thank you for uh, these sweet words, this prayer that we do offer in faith, asking you to speak to us through your word. We pray that your word would nourish us and strengthen us, encourage us, challenge us, and compel us to live lives that that uh, that serve you and great joy uh, in Christ, that we would, as we say all the time, that we would enjoy you, that we would display your glory through transformed lives, and we would share the good news with others. In these things we pray, amen. All right, you could be seated, and if you want to find a Bible and open to the book of Matthew, we're going to get our bearings on a new series this morning. So Genesis is in the rearview mirror. Now we're in Matthew. And one of our core values, I think this is on the slide here, one of our core values here at our church is compelling exposition. And what we mean by that is we make the Word of God central by preaching it with passion and clarity. And actually, not just our preaching, but our Bible study, is that we want to come to the Bible in a submissive posture, not bringing our questions and primarily, but letting the Bible ask the questions and answer the questions it wants to answer. And so we often pick books of the Bible or sections of Scripture and then work systematically through it and uh, allow it to set the agenda for our time together. And then we believe that this is the Word of God, that God actually uh, inspired this book, that he gave it to us over time through, the, uh, through many years and through many different people, and that the Word does the work, that God does his work through his Word by his Spirit in our lives. And so we trust that the Word is what compels us, um, not law, not, uh, or not, um, not external things, but the word itself animates us and compels us. And so we want to just explain the word together. We want to look at the word together. We want to submit ourselves to the word together, knowing that it's, that is how he's going to transform us. And so, um, so what I want to do is as we set up this new sermon series, the greatest sermon, looking at the sermon on the Mount by Jesus is I want to set us up, uh, for success today. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to do four things. One is I'm going to give you a big overview of the whole book very quickly. And then I'm going to give you a sense of what the immediate context leading up to Matthew 5 through 7, which is where the sermon is found, Matthew 5 through 7. I want to set you up on what happens in those first four chapters. And then I actually am going to, I've asked a few people, we're actually going to read the entire sermon uninterrupted all the way through. It takes about 12 minutes, okay? So we're going to spend part of our sermon time actually reading the sermon and without comment, without interruption, and just how Jesus himself delivered it. And so we will, uh, we'll just hear it just in its entirety there, and then I'll come back and give us some setup for how we're going to walk through it this summer, okay? So it's a little bit different sermon today, but we're setting ourselves up. It's kind of like I'm putting the ball, the golf ball on the tee today so that we can hit it a bunch of times this summer, okay? So we're going to tee it up really well so that we, we're aimed in the right direction, we're ready to receive this sermon, and we're actually going to experience the whole thing uninterrupted uh, as part of today's message. So as far as, as uh, in terms of a big overview of the book, uh, Matthew is the author. It's called the book of Matthew because Matthew wrote it. It's a biography of Jesus written by Matthew, who is a follower of Jesus. Matthew was a Jewish, uh, a national Israelite Jewish person who, uh, who was part of the heritage, part of the history of the Old Testament, all of those promises, all of that special uh, honor that God gave to God's people. Matthew is part of that. 
But he's also a bit of a traitor in the sense that occupying Rome, he collects taxes for them. And so he kind of has no home in some ways. He's not really Roman. And he's also, he's a Jewish man, but he's kind of in league with the Romans in collecting taxes against his own people by the oppressors. And so Matthew lives probably a pretty complicated outcast type life. You talk about often the tax collectors and sinners. Uh, it's like they get their own category in addition to being a sinner. You also get the tax collector. So that's Matthew. And Jesus comes along in Matthew chapter 9 and calls him and says, hey, you come follow me. And Matthew does because Jesus, following Jesus seems more compelling than collecting taxes for the Romans against his own people. And so he follows him. And then after Jesus dies, rises again and ascends into heaven, at some point a, a few years later, Matthew is, uh, takes the notes probably as a tax collector. He was good with accounting, good at taking notes while Jesus taught and did things, and then compiled these things together into this biography of Jesus. And so it's a very important book by Matthew, whose life himself was changed and transformed. He was given a new ident identity by Jesus. In fact, the message of Matthew's gospel, if I could put it in one sentence, would be this. Matthew is intending to get us to believe that Jesus is the king of everything from heaven, as described and promised in the Hebrew scriptures. He is a king bringing a kingdom, a king of everything from heaven as described and promised in the Hebrew Old Scriptures. So this has a very Jewish feel to it. It starts with a Jewish genealogy, and then it ends up calling these people to take the gospel to the ends of the earth. There's all kinds of quotations of the Old Testament Scriptures almost on every page in this book. If you were to flip through the book of Matthew, you'll see Old Testament quotations and fulfillments just peppered through this whole thing. So Matthew, as almost an outcast from his own people, is now writing this biography of Jesus back to his own people to get them to believe and understand how Jesus is the fulfillment of all the scriptures and is indeed the king, the Davidic king, who will be a blessing to all nations as, uh, as promised to Abraham, their father. Uh, a big picture here, I think, is, uh, I think I have another slide here. So here, here's just an outline of it. And I actually see Matthew as a bit of a chiasm. Chiasm is a Hebrew way of arranging material so that the first part and the last part rhymes thematically. And then the next, all the way down to kind of a midpoint. And so I actually, so it's almost like going up a mountain and down, but although I think it's more of going down a valley and back up. We see that King Jesus has credentials. We'll see that in one through four. We'll look at Jesus' resume. And it's going to end up with Jesus conquering and being the fulfillment of all of these credentials. He's going to be the one that actually is the king of all nations. It goes from Abraham, the blessing to all nation, son of David, this genealogy. Well, now he's going to call and act like a king, sending his people to all nations. So from beginning to end, we have these rhyming ideas. And then it's structured around these five sermons or speeches of Jesus. Speech one, the kingdom values that we're going to look at today, or that's what we're going to look at this summer. And then Jesus, King Jesus has authority over demons. We see his, his kingly authority over, uh, over different things. And then the kingdom strategy in speech number two, chapter 10. Then Jesus begins to get misunderstood, even by his own family members. He gets kicked out of certain towns. People begin to have questions. There begins to be animosity against him. And so then he does the kingdom parables. You remember we looked at those last summer, right? Where all of a sudden these kingdom parables begin to split the crowd. Those who have eyes to see will see and understand the kingdom. And those who don't see and understand these stories, they eventually kind of wander away, which then just creates more polarization on this following Jesus thing. He then talks about kingdom citizens in Matthew chapter 18. How are the people of God to these kingdom citizens to relate to each other? That's where you get Matthew 18 and how to confront sin. How forgiveness should mark the relationship within the church among kingdom citizens. King Jesus has authority. He then begins to challenge 
the Jewish system. He goes into the temple and he begins to challenge the Pharisees and he begins to really challenge the Jewish system with authority. And then he gives a kingdom judgment in his Olivet Discourse where he talks a lot about the things that are to come and the fall of the system and this temple and then ultimately the king conquers. He's put to death, he rises again. And so this has a real Jewish feel to it, but it's structured around these five big sermons or speeches of Jesus with connective tissue of stories between them. All driving at this theme of Jesus being the king, bringing a kingdom, uh, from heaven as described and promised in the Hebrew scriptures, okay? So that's the big framework. We're going to be in that first speech this summer. He's looking at that Sermon on the Mount, this first big speech of Jesus where he really lays out what his kingdom is like. The kingdom charter, the kingdom constitution, the kingdom values are what is going to be taking place there. So that's the big picture of what Matthew's doing in this gospel. Five big speeches all driving towards this idea of Jesus being the king who fulfills the Old Testament scriptures and is a king for all nations. So let's now look at Jesus' messianic resume. Let's look at chapters 1 through 4. In, in, so if you want to open up your Bibles to whatever that page is there, uh, um, I wish I had written the page numbers down, but I didn't. Uh, but there's Bibles under the chairs if you don't have a Bible in front of you. But it'd be good for you to flip the pages through these first four chapters and see some of this for yourself. We see that it opens up, the book of Matthew opens up with the words, Biblos Genesis, which means the book of the genealogy of the son of Abraham, the son of David, right? Maybe I got that backwards. Son of David, son of Abraham. And he's connecting right out of the gate that this is a fulfillment of the Old Testament covenants and promises, particularly the Abrahamic covenant, that a seed from Abraham will be a blessing to all the nations, and, and also the Davidic, the Davidic lineage, that there would be an eternal king that comes from David. And then you get these genealogies, which is a bit of a nod to Genesis, but then also continuing it all the way down to go, Jesus has credentials. He has the messianic bloodline. So as he's trying to, Matthew's trying to get his people to believe that Jesus is the promised Messiah, he cites evidence for it by looking at the Old Testament scriptures. And the first thing that he puts out in verses 1 through 17 is that Jesus has a messianic bloodline. He deserves consideration for being the messianic king because he has the right bloodline. He lines up. Like we said in verse 1, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. That's, that's a, a big way to open your book if you're a Jewish person. That is, that is explosive. This is the promised one that the Old Testament has been pointing to. In verses 18 through 25, we see Matthew telling us about Jesus having a supernatural birth which was promised in the Old Testament as well. Look at verse 18. Now, the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, we, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. So we have a virgin birth that's being promised here. He has a supernatural birth. So you should consider him a possibility of the kingly Messiah because he has the messianic bloodline. He has a supernatural birth. In chapter 2, verses 1 through 12, he receives international worship. In chapter 2, verses 1 and 2, when Jesus is born, uh, now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. That's, that's a huge statement. They've come to worship this king of the Jews as a deity, and they're not one of the Jewish people. Somehow the prophecies, probably through Daniel in the Old Testament, uh, the prophecies that a king of the Jews would come, that is to be worshipped by all peoples. And these foreigners recognize it, and they travel all of this way 
So Jesus has messianic bloodline. Jesus has a supernatural birth. Jesus has international worship. Even other nations are recognizing the specialness of this man, this Jesus of Nazareth. Chapter 2, verses 7 through 23, Jesus has divine protection. Look at verse 13. Now when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you. For Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. So King Herod hears that there's a king born in his realm, doesn't know where he is, tries to track him down and kills him and finds out that Bethlehem's the place. So he decides to go ahead and, and, and issue a decree to wipe out all children two years old and under in order that no rivalry to his throne might come. And an angel, God sends an angel to miraculously reveal information to Joseph so that he might be saved. So God is doing something special with this baby, right? So there's a divine protection that God is doing something special with this baby and fulfilling scripture. He's also trying to get, Matthew's also trying to get his people to believe that Jesus has the potential. He could be the Messiah. In chapter 3, verses 1 through 12, he has an Elijah-like forerunner. The Old Testament told us that there would be one that would come before, that would make the path straight for the Messiah. There would be one who's like an Elijah. And we read in chapter 3, verses 1 through 3, In those days John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah. So Isaiah had predicted that there would be someone like a John, John the Baptist that would come and, and be kind of the, the hype man. He would be the, the forerunner. He would be the one that would give people warning that the Messiah is about to come. And guess what? Jesus has that in his cousin John. So he ticks that box too. So you just see these boxes beginning to tick off that Jesus qualifies. Jesus qualifies as the Jewish Messiah. In verses 13 through 17, Jesus has divine endorsement. When he goes to John the Baptist to be baptized, look at verses 16 and 17 of chapter 3. When Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. So he actually gets a, you actually get the Spirit coming down, hovering over the waters and landing on Jesus, which is, I don't know if you remember in the Old in the Old Testament in Genesis, when the, the creation, the first creation was happening, the Spirit was hovering over the waters, and then something emerged from those waters that was going to be this new. Jesus, in a sense, is the new creation. He is the new, he is the one who will bring the new heavens and the earth. So the Spirit comes and lands on him, showing that this is something new that God is doing. God is doing a new thing. He's bringing a new kingdom, a new king, and actually the Father himself speaks loudly and says, this is my Son in whom I'm well pleased. So he has Divine endorsement. He's got the Father signing off on his ministry and his identity. Not only that, in chapter 4, verses 1 through 11, we see that this Jesus of Nazareth has power over Satan, and he tells this story of Jesus being out driven into the desert for 40 days without food. And he and Satan go one-on-one. -on -one. Satan tries to take him down. It's almost, again, an echo back to Genesis where Adam... And Eve were in the garden against the serpent, and they had all of the advantages. Now Jesus has all the disadvantages, and Satan comes, and where Adam fails, Jesus succeeds. Jesus does not fall to the temptation of the serpent. He defeats the serpent by the word of God at his physical weak point, like at the point of death after 40 days of not eating. Even this man, Jesus, at his weakest physical point, is greater than the first Adam in, his, in a garden. And so we see that Jesus has power over Satan. He is a new and better Adam. 
He's not just the one who brings the new creation. He's, he is the one who is the new Adam, bringing in a new humanity, a restored humanity. And then in chapter 4, verses 12 through 16, we see that Jesus' ministry starts properly according to the Old Testament. Look at four, verses 13 and 14. And leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum by the sea, in the, in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali, so that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. And then he quotes the Isaiah prophecy. So all of these hints, all of these prophecies in the Old Testament that tell you what this promised king is going to be look like, this son of Abraham, this son of David, what he's going to look like, Matthew is trying to get his people to understand that Jesus qualifies. Look at his resume. Look at his credentials. He ticks every box. And so we need to, as we enter into this story, these first four chapters are really introduction to Jesus. And he's trying to get his people and any of the readers, Jewish or non-Jewish, to realize that this guy needs to be seriously considered. He might just be the divine son of God. He might just be the Messiah. He might just be the one that can actually fix everything that's wrong. And we just have this resume. Messianic bloodline, supernatural birth, international worship, divine protection, Elijah-like forerunner, divine endorsement, power over Satan, and his ministry starts in exactly as the Old Testament prescribes and predicts. So, with that introduction, give him your attention, right? Consider that perhaps this is the one we've been looking for. Matthew is telling us that Jesus is uniquely qualified for consideration of Israel's eternal Messiah King, who is the blessing to all nations, okay? So that's what the first four chapters are doing in terms of introduction. And it's just rapid fire. You can see how many quotations from the Old Testament are there just to back him up, to go, this is who we're talking about when we're talking of Jesus of Nazareth. So let's look at verses 17 through 25. Let's just look at the immediate context because when Jesus then begins his ministry, we begin to see in verse 17, the very first thing we learn about Jesus in his ministry as he begins is that he's a preacher. He's a preacher. And listen to what he says. From that time, Jesus began to preach saying, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. I think that might be perhaps the key verse in the whole book. Now, you think about it. He's telling people that he's coming into the earthly kingdom. He's coming into the Roman kingdom. And he's saying, the kingdom of heaven has come. And I want you to renounce your kingdom and enter my kingdom. Repent. Change. Change your mind. Change your allegiance. Now, think about this. If you're thinking about a kingdom, if someone comes up and brings a kingdom you would be thinking, okay, well, where's your land? Where's your armies? Where's your, you know, where's your economy? Where, where's the stuff we can look at? And Jesus just walks up and says, the kingdom of heaven is at hand, and it's just him, which means the kingdom is all about Jesus, a person, right? Jesus comes into a place, and the kingdom is now present, right? And so here's what we learn here in this very first verse, chapter 17, verse 17. Jesus is proclaiming a kingdom like a king. Jesus begins preaching and proclaiming like he's a king. The kingdom of heaven has come. Anytime Jesus steps into a house or a place, the kingdom of heaven has come. The kingdom is a person. The kingdom is a person. So just remember that, that we get this very first thing. From, the, from that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Jesus is proclaiming a kingdom like a king. Now let's look at verses 18 through 22. We get a second thing that we learn about Jesus. While walking by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Immediately they left their nets and followed him. 
And going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, in the boat with Zebedee, their father, mending their nets, and he called them. Immediately, they left the boat and their father and followed him. This is pretty amazing. Jesus just walks up to some people and says, you, you're with me now. This is what we're going to do. You're going to follow me. And then they just follow, which is part of what rabbis would do. Rabbis would often select, you know, you'd kind of follow a rabbi around, and then there would be this special select group of of chosen ones that the rabbi would then do special investment in. He would call them to follow him, to walk with him, to do life 24-7 with him. And that was a high honor. These guys are fishing because they really didn't cut it in school, so to speak, right? They, they went through cert- certain Jewish training, but only the best of the best get to go on and be considered for a rabbi. And then the rabbi would only pick the best of the best from those to invest his time in. And so Jesus is actually going to the rejects. He's going to the people who had to go back to fishing. And he calls them. And they follow him. And so we see that Jesus is calling disciples like a rabbi. So first of all, we see him bringing a kingdom like a king. We see him call disciples like a rabbi. He's going to be a teacher. He's going to explain the law. He's calling people to follow him closely. This, is, this kind of sounds like 1 Kings 19 where Elijah calls Elisha. Elisha's in this pit doing some work. Elijah goes, hey, you, come with me. And he does. <laughs> this call, this authoritative call to come and learn from me, a teacher. So we learn that Jesus is proclaiming a king a kingdom like a king, and he's calling disciples like a rabbi. Okay, so we're learning some things about Jesus and what it means to follow him. We're following a king. We're part of a kingdom. We're disciples following a rabbi. And then in verses 23 through 25, we get this. Jesus is reversing the curse like a deity. He's reversing the curse like a deity. Look at this, verse 23. And he went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. So his fame spread throughout all Syria, and they brought him all the sick, those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons, those having seizures and paralytics, and he healed them. And great crowds followed him from Galilee, which would be in the north, more agrarian, the farmers, fishermen, And from the Decapolis, east, more metropolitan. From Jerusalem, which would be in the center of the country and maybe more of the elites from the capital. From Judea, the south, and the herdsmen. And from beyond the Jordan, which would be outsiders from the nation of Israel. So this huge crowd is following him because Jesus is so full of of grace. He's preaching a kingdom. He's calling disciples. And then he's reversing the curse like a deity. He, he, he is righting the wrongs. He is restoring the effects of sin and fallenness, demons and diseases. And Jesus is just extending grace. He heals them all. So grace, 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 miraculous power, reversing the curse, calling disciples. And so you get all of this pushing out, and you get this diverse, gigantic following that's beginning to follow Jesus. Because they're experiencing something they've never experienced before. A king who's bringing a kingdom. A rabbi who's calling disciples and he's calling the worst of the worst. And he's reversing the curse like a deity. This looks like it could be the Messiah. You see in Isaiah chapter 35 verses 5 and 6 that the, the, the ministry of the Messiah is going to look like this. Let me just read it for you. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened. The ears of the deaf unstopped. And they shall, then shall the lame man leap like a deer, and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. For waters break, break forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. That's what Jesus' ministry looks like in chapter 4, is streams breaking out in the desert. 
He's coming, and this is like no one has ever seen before. And he's gathering all different kinds of people from different economic classes, from different geographical places. They're all gathering, and they're following him because they're seeing that he has power to do what no one else can do. He's proclaiming a message. He's claiming to be a king in a kingdom that is unlike anything else. So that's what leads up to chapter 5, where Jesus then goes up on a mountaintop, and everybody probably sits down to listen to him as he then unfolds what his kingdom is like. He's just extended so much grace and so much, and, and so much um, healing and supernatural ministry among them that now, because of that, they're now wanting to follow him, and he's going to give them the directions on what his kingdom is like. And so we're going to have to remember that as Jesus unpacks his kingdom, that it's coming from a place of they have already experienced grace from Jesus Christ. They've already been kind of gathered together by the work that he has done. And we'll find out that some of them are more genuine in their following than others. But this grace, all of this, all of this stuff that's going to come in the Sermon on the Mount comes from a foundation of Jesus being gracious to the people. And then as he has been gracious to them, he's going to call them to discipleship in this kingdom. He's going to call them to be citizens in this kingdom. So we have to keep that in mind that chapter 4 is the context for this whole thing, that these people are following him because he is fixing what's wrong. And he's calling and he's compelling. So then Jesus, a king, a rabbi, a deity, gives the kingdom values discourse. He gives this Sermon on the Mount to explain what kind of kingdom, that if they're going to continue to follow him, the direction he's going to take them the kind of people they're going to become. If they trust in him, if they follow this king, if they trust in him, they will become like this kind of kingdom. This is what it'll be like. Now think about this. Every significant movement, every significant nation has some sort of manifesto, right? Has some sort of constitution. Like if the, if the mission is going to last very long, it needs to have some order, some structure, some values. A constitution, something that tells you what the thing is, why it exists, where its boundaries are, where it's going, how to get in, what it's like to be in, etc. In fact, our church has a constitution of how we are structured as a church, how we define ourselves biblically. We also have a statement of faith that gives you a, a clear understanding of what we believe and what we base our understanding of what God wants us to be and who he is from a statement of faith. And then we have a covenant that defines how we're going to live together. And the Sermon on the Mount is a bit like that. It defines what the kingdom is and how we live in it. If we've come into his kingdom, what is it going to be like? And what is going to be called, asked of us? So consider for a minute someone immigrating from another country. If Jesus is a king bringing a kingdom and he's calling people to leave their kingdom, repent, and come into his kingdom, um, it's a bit like moving from one nation to another. A bit like moving from one nation to another. So just consider for a moment immigrating to the United States. You have to, if you're going to immigrate to the United States, you have to take and pass a citizenship test. Have any of you seen the citizenship test before? Anybody? Okay, I have it here. So I'm going to ask some questions. Let's see if we can pass the citizenship test. So someone immigrating to the country gets picked 10 random questions from this that they have to answer at least six correctly to be eligible to come in. There's 100 questions here. And, um, and you have to get, they pick 10 randomly. And someone has to get six right to come in. So let me just give you a few. All right, so this will be kind of interactive. Here we go. But I want you to think about what this looks like to leave one kingdom with a certain set of values, certain set of history, and what that would look like to go into another country or kingdom with a different culture and being assimilated into that culture. That's where we're going with this. So let me ask this. What does the Constitution do? Close. Sets up the government, 
defines the government, protects basic rights of Americans. Okay, so all right, I'll give you 10 of these. You're zero right now. Okay. How many amendments does the Constitution have? 27. Good job. Gabby is on her way to citizenship. Here we go. Number 12. What is the rule of law? Number 12 on the list here. What is the rule of law? What? How we're governed? Four things. Everyone must follow the law. Leaders must obey the law. Government must obey the law. No one is above the law. That's what the rule of law means. Okay, so we're well on our way here. Let me give you another shot at this. If both the president and vice president can no longer serve, who becomes president? Hey, there we go. Scott can be a citizen. Here we go. Let me just, just a couple more because this is fun. Under our Constitution, some powers belong to the federal government. What is one power of the federal government? To declare war. You always went to war, didn't you? Okay. Print money, declare war, create an army, make treaties. Those are the four things. Uh, here's another one. Under our Constitution, some powers belong to the states. What is one power of the states? Uh, that's not on my list. <laughs> Provide schooling and education. Provide protection or police. Provide safety, fire departments. Uh, give a driver's license. Approve zoning and land use. Okay, we're so close. You guys are so close to citizenship. What is one responsibility that only a U.S. citizen can exercise? Right to vote in a federal election. Serve on a jury. Okay? What is one promise you make when you come become a United States citizen? Oh, yeah, there you go. That's one. Give up loyalty to other countries. Defend the Constitution and laws of the United States. Obey the laws of the United States. Serve in the U.S. military if needed. Serve the nation and be loyal to the United States. So um, let's just do one more here. Why does the flag have 13 stripes? The 13 original colonies. Okay. So when you become a citizen of the United States, you renounce loyalty to other places and you now make the United States your primary loyalty. And there's certain things you need to know about that about this nation to be able to operate effectively in it, to be an effective citizen of it. And I think, while the Sermon on the Mount is not a test that you have to pass to get in like this, it is an explanation of what kind of place are you entering and how does it work? How do we relate to each other? What are the expectations that are placed on the citizen of Jesus' kingdom? What kind of information you, do you need to know? And so we're going to see Jesus answer at least seven questions in this sermon. You could think of others, but here's at least seven questions for the for the, for the citizen, for the citizen that's wanting to enter Jesus' kingdom, wants to claim Jesus as king, I think these would be some questions you would ask as you're going to enter this new country. How does one enter? What are the laws of this kingdom? We're going to see Jesus do that in Matthew chapter 5, where he talks about, you have heard it said in the law, but I tell you, where he's laying down what the laws, how we operate within this kingdom. How do these laws relate to the current laws of the kingdom of God? Because remember, we're still in Old Testament times. We tend to think that once we flip the page into the New Testament, we're now in a New Testament world. But Jesus is actually still speaking in an Old Testament world. The Old Testament law is still very much in play here. Jesus has not risen from the, died and risen again. He has not yet brought a new covenant. The Holy Spirit has not yet come in its fullness. And so this is still Old Testament times. So the Jewish people would be thinking deeply about how does this kingdom relate to the kingdom of Israel? 
What does that look like? How do kingdom citizens relate to the king? How do kingdom citizens relate to one another? How do kingdom citizens relate to the world? How do kingdom citizens face enemies and threats and difficulties? Because every kingdom has, has enemies that want to take it down, want to destroy it, want to rob it. So when, as we enter into this Sermon on the Mount, these are the kinds of questions that are happening as Jesus is calling us to renounce our kingdom, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is, is at hand, enter into his kingdom. He's already given them a taste of what his kingdom is like. And these people from all different kinds of places, all different kinds of backgrounds are gathered at this mountain to hear Jesus teach. For these three chapters, they're going to get some of these questions answered. Maybe not fully, but he's going to graciously, but seriously, with great kingly authority, lay out for them what it means to follow him and to claim him as king. As you now come into a citizenship relationship with each other, you now come under the submission of this king. What will this king provide for you? What are you going to be your responsibilities if you follow this king? How do you recognize other citizens of the kingdom? How do you treat them? How do you face enemies? Where is this kingdom going? All of that is being introduced, at least in some form, in this sermon. So now what I would like to do is just take a few minutes, and I've, had, I've asked three people to read. And we're actually going to read the whole Sermon on the Mount. It takes about 12 minutes, okay? So Bree and Sarah and Jessica, if you guys want to come up here, I'm going to pray for us. And then I want you to just maybe with your Bible open, I think it'll be on the screen as well. With that introduction now set up that I've given you, imagine that you're on that hillside now. Imagine that you've seen some marvelous things. You've heard about this amazing Jesus. You're now sitting in the grass, and maybe you've got some people that you know around you, and Jesus is about to deliver this message. I want you to just hear it without interruption, just read straight through, and then I'll come up and kind of wrap us up. But uh, let me pray for us, and then let's just hear it read in all of its beauty and pay close attention to what Jesus is doing in relation to explaining his kingdom. So, God, we ask you to speak through your word. We believe that your word has power and that it's not my explanations that have power. It's not a sermon that has power, uh, but it's the word that has power. And so, God, we pray that as we just hear words from the God-man, from Jesus, the king, the rabbi, the God uh, of the universe, uh, that we would take to heart what he says and uh, that we would, uh, would hear things uh, in your word. We would notice things uh, that maybe we've overlooked before. And so, God, we just pray that this reading straight through would be really helpful to our souls. In Jesus' name, amen. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. You are the salt of the earth. But if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, 
but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. You have heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not murder, and whoever murders shall be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says, You fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. So if you are offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First, be reconciled to your brother, and then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you are going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge, and the judge to the guard, and you be put in prison. Truly I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go, go into hell. It was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery, and whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Again, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Let what you say simply be yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you, and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. You have heard that it was said, You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good, and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? 
And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? You, therefore, must be perfect, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Chapter 6. Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. For then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. Thus, when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may be praised by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners, that they may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. Pray then like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. And when you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces, that their fasting may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face, that your fasting may not be seen by others, but by your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy, and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, and your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is that darkness? No one can serve two masters. For, neither he will, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is life not more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his lifespan? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet, I tell you, even Solomon, in all his glory, was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive, and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore, do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. 
But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. Judge not that you be not judged. For with the judgment you pronounce you will be judged, and with the measure you use it will be measured to you. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when there is the log in your own eye? You hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Do not give dogs what is holy, and do not throw your pearls before pigs, lest they trample them underfoot and turn to attack you. Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds. And to the one who knocks, it will be opened. Or which one of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? So whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction, and those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow, and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus you will recognize them by their fruits. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall, because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell, and great was the fall of it. And when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. Thank you. So do you feel the weight of this sermon? And the conclusion that those who were sitting there, who had seen the amazing miracles that Jesus had done, and their conclusion as they're getting up to leave, is not, boy, Jesus is so merciful and gracious, he's so loving and kind, which are all true, and I think you see that evidence throughout the message. But they go, when he finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching, for he was teaching as one who had authority, like a king, like a rabbi, like God. 
That was what they walked away with, was going, this is a king who demands allegiance from us, demands our whole life to follow him. And so to us, as we get ready to dig into this message section by section, I would just ask these questions to you or call you to this, to the Christian. I would encourage you to humbly commit to this Jesus on his terms. He's laying out the terms here of what it means to follow him. So for those of us who are Christians, let us align our lives individually in every way to the joyful conformity that Jesus calls us to here. Let us submit and let him be king over us and call us out wherever he needs to call us out, encourage us wherever he needs to encourage us in whatever way is needed here. Heart, mind, soul, and body following him on his terms. As members of a church, let us take great effort to link arms to help one another to embody the qualities expressed in this sermon. I do pray that as we get to the end of this sermon, we would be able to, that if a stranger were to walk in and they were to read that sermon and see the way we conduct our church, they would see some connection. They would see fruit, kingdom, sermon on the mount kind of fruit being cultivated in here. Not that that would be perfect, but that it would be real, it would be genuine, it would match up, it would, it would make sense. And to those of you who are just curious, maybe you've not committed your life to Christ, maybe you've not trusted in him, maybe you've not obeyed his call to repent and believe for the kingdom of heaven is in, at hand, there were certainly a lot of people like that in the crowd. And Jesus speaks to them as well. But if you're the curious, I encourage you to sit in the grass with us listening to this sermon of Jesus, unpacking it, and to consider what he is saying. We talked about his resume. We talked about his credentials. He deserves a hearing. And if you're not a Christian, please come on Sunday mornings and give this thing a look. Really think it through. Is this the kind of kingdom you want to be a part of? And is this the kind of king you're willing to give your life for? None of us can accomplish or achieve any of these things that are described in this sermon apart from union with Christ. Jesus had to come to them before they could ever come to him. So the Sermon on the Mount is not a ladder of achievement to try to get Jesus to love us, but Jesus has loved us and come in graciousness to deal with our sin problem, to reverse the curse. He is uniquely qualified as the God-man, and he will eventually in this book go to the cross to deal with the sin problem and to open up a way that if we'll trust in him, the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, we then can be filled with his spirit, cleansed of his sin, justified, and brought under the rule and reign of this king, where these qualities do actually begin to come to fruition in our lives. We actually can participate in this kingdom. We can begin to get on this trajectory. And so to the curious, I would encourage you to humbly consider this sermon, not as a ladder to climb or a checklist to complete, not a test to pass, but a trajectory that God produces and enables in the heart of those who have trusted in him, have followed him, are submitted to him. I'm just going to warn you that this sermon is going to offend all of us. It's going to step on all of our toes. This sermon also will uniquely encourage us. And what will be interesting is for us to have conversations because what convicted you might encourage you, right? And vice versa. And so we'll do this in community. It's going to offend all of us. This sermon will demand full allegiance to King Jesus above all else. No one's going to walk out of this thing unscathed. No one's going to walk out of here thinking they get to run their life the way they want. This is going to be a call to submit it all to Jesus. And he's going to, he's going to hit us right in the idols. And he's going to call us to renounce them and to follow him to repent for his kingdom is here. So let's just take a moment of response. And I have a question I want to ask you. You've got a prayer card there. That would be a great place to write this out. If you want us to pray, you want to kind of put something in, kind of a, a commitment or some sort of response. 
But here's the question I have for you. I think it's on the slide there. So just in a moment of quiet, I want you to reflect on this question. Am I willing, as we go through this series, am I willing to take Jesus at his word even if I don't like it or agree with him? Am I willing to take Jesus as the king, rabbi, deity that he claims to be, whether I like it or agree with him, I'm willing to take and submit to his authority. So just take a moment and pray. Pray honestly about where those pressure points might be. Oh God, we ask that you would help us to recognize you as king, as our king, as our rabbi, as our God. We pray that we would come with eyes open, ears open, heart open to whatever it is that you have to say to us. Help us like these who are sitting in this marvel at your authority and the clarity of your call to us. The places where it's confusing or difficult or really just really goes against our assumptions or our culture, I pray, God, that we would help each other figure that out, how to walk faithfully with you. And I pray, God, that we would be able to answer this question with a yes. That we will take you at your word as king, rabbi, and deity. That we answer yes, but with your help. That it would be you that animates and enables us to walk faithfully in this new kingdom. So, Lord, I pray for those that are on the outside, maybe looking in, considering it. I thank you that they're here, and I pray that they would see it clearly and be able to respond with their eyes open, not tricked into anything, not manipulated, but honestly seeing it for what it is and you calling them to it. And for those of us that claim to be in, Lord, I pray that we would be honest about our relationship to the King, our dependence upon you, and where your grace still needs to. Thank you for listening to the Redeeming Grace Church podcast. For more information about our church, go to rgcrc.org.